Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm back today with Dr. Mark Chamberlain on the podcast. Last episode, as I often do on the Illuminate podcast, kind of do two episodes with one person. I had Mark on to talk about the book that we co-authored, Love You, Hate the Porn, about 10 years ago. And so we were coming up on the 10-year anniversary and just wanted to connect with him and talk about that book and some of the things that we have learned and continue to learn on how to best support couples in recovery. So that's a great episode. And as you'll see, Mark is a fantastic therapist and human being. Just so grateful to have him on the podcast and also to have him as a friend. He's a great resource. So in today's episode, we actually talk about a book that he wrote before. Uh, He wrote this book probably 20 years ago called Wanting More. And we talk a lot about the book in this, so I won't give away too much right this minute, but just suffice it to say that this book is one of those books that for me stays out. I don't just tuck it away on the bookshelf. It's one that I pull out and reference. And I actually reread the entire book in preparation for this podcast and was excited to rediscover some stuff in there that I'd forgotten. Mark does such a fantastic job on this book, helping us really learn how to live with less and how to basically decrease the amount of stimulation we have in our lives. And I think in today's world, I mean, when he wrote this book 20 years ago, there was certainly the internet and a bunch of other you know, TVs and stuff. But the amount of hyperstimulation we have today is, I don't know how many more times stronger than it was back then, but certainly more than it used to be. So I think it's definitely a book for our times. Let me introduce to you Mark real quick formally. He's a licensed clinical psychologist and he studied at BYU, Brigham Young University. And he's been in private practice for a lot of years. You can find him at suncrestcounseling.com. And Mark is a specialist in treating impulse control disorders, pornography addiction, and just does a ton of work with trauma and emotionally focused couples therapy. And he's an author and just does a tremendous amount of good out there. And he and his wife, Jenny, live in Salt Lake City. And it's just a real honor to have him on the show. So I'm going to jump right into my next interview with Dr. Mark Chamberlain. Well, once again, Mark, welcome back to the Illuminate Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, folks, Mark and I, we kind of riffed for about 45 minutes on our on the book that we worked on together, Love You, Hate the Porn. And it's a couple's recovery book. And we talked about a lot of things that we teach in the book, but really just started to build on some of those ideas and kind of go deeper into some different directions. That was that was a great conversation. And I, I definitely would encourage you to go back and listen to it. You get, you get to hear kind of the creative collaborative process that really, you know, was really central to finishing up that book. So, but Mark, we're going to talk about in this episode, and I really can say this, I revisited this book this last week in preparation for our conversation. I would put this in my, definitely in my top 25 books that I've ever read. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. That means a lot to me. You know, it's, I remember the very first time I read it, I was like, wow, this is really good. But I picked it up again, like 10 years later and reread the whole thing. And you know, when you wrote this, there wasn't social media. There wasn't, I mean, the internet was, you know, a few years old because you wrote it like 20 years ago, didn't you? Yeah. 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 
And so it's so, so much has changed in terms of people's struggle with being able to enjoy life and be sensitive to what's around them and inside of them. And so this book, Wanting More, is definitely a book for our times. And I, I understand that it's out of print. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. But I got on Amazon and you can find 30, 40 used copies. I bought me another copy. Exactly. So, <laughs> it's available widely. <laughs> so Mark, you've made all the money. They're going to pay you on it. So now you just got to exactly. go buy used copies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but um, yeah, go buy it for a buck ninety and pay five dollars in shipping. And you'll have a <laughs> copy of your own. <laughs> That's exactly what I did. But I I want to revisit this book and I I want to introduce it to my audience. This is a book I think every family should have in their home, and I I really mean that because as I read this, I immediately sat down with my wife. As I reread it this last week, I sat down with my wife and I said, I want to talk about maybe how we can do some things differently with our kids and screens and even how we eat dinner and how we spend time in the evenings. It really just had some very immediate impact you know, on me because again, when I first read it 10 years ago, my kids were pretty little and we've had you know, new challenges and new things and, and I just see things differently. So I, I love this. I think it's very important for families and individuals, of course, to create an environment that supports these principles. It's just, just awesome. So that, that uh, means a lot. The essence of writing when you're doing it is teaching or sharing yeah. really what you're learning. And that was my kind of shock at learning what I learned about. I think it was, I was so caught up in Helen Keller and in the working in the field of addiction and seeing how your, our appetites lie to us so effectively. And then seeing someone who has so little stimulation have this rich full life yeah. yeah and live soulfully and it's so there's such a depth to it and say wait you know there really are some principles here of enjoyment that aren't widely utilized even if they're understood they're not widely lived by are they right imagine i mean she had what three of the five senses she was missing sight and sound Right. Yeah. So she had couldn't speak either. Uh, right. Right. Uh, well, limited. Like when you hear recordings of her speaking, she did speak, but at the articulation. Mm. It, but the laughter—that's what I was amazed at hearing recordings of her—is the laughter. Is there's such a depth to it, and the wow. enjoyment of the interaction, even though she can't see the face, she can't hear the voice, but the ideas. Once the ideas start exchanging. And her, how she lights up and enjoys connecting with people. It's like, okay, here's someone who's making the most of a very empty, dry kind of field. Is a fertile field to her? What's going on? How, what is she mm-hmm. doing that mm-hmm. is making the most of what sensory stimulation, if you will, that she does have? Yeah. So before we get too far ahead, I. I'm sitting here recognizing that you and I are kind of in on an inside conversation about a book that we're both really familiar with now. I mean, (laughs) you're the author, I'm a fan, obviously. But let's back up a second and and just introduce this book, what you why you wrote it, what it's about for you, like what you were hoping to teach. The book is called Wanting More, The Challenge of Enjoyment in the Age of Addiction. And again by Dr. Mark Chamberlain, the author here who we have on this podcast. But Mark, can you tell us just introduce the book to the listeners. I'd love for them to hear it from your own mouth. Yeah, the often these days, like we'll get advertising gets blamed or social media gets blamed, but the focus of the book is on how our 
appetite is a willing accomplice with all of those other things that give us fear of missing out or, you know, the promise of whatever, that our appetite is lying to us, telling us that there's something out there that if you get more of, you'll have satisfaction, you'll feel contentment, you'll feel fulfillment, and that it's a bait and switch, that our appetite is getting machine, not a settling in with satisfaction machine. Mm. And so our appetite will keep lying to us and it's our job to stare appetite in the face and say, I know you're going to tell me how (laughs) much better life would be with this, that, or the other thing. And I'm going to settle back into what I have and dealing with less, which is a challenge that is means delaying gratification and dealing with a little bit of deprivation now, but then the richness that can come over time as my enjoyment, inner enjoyment mechanism in my physiology and in my soul wakes up again because it's not getting, you know, fireworks and cotton candy. And so it's that recalibrating our enjoyment system so that we aren't on that treadmill all the time. Yeah, I love that. Really, I I like, I'm going to go back to one thing you just said that that was really instructive for me. You said that appetite is only focused on getting, not Mm -hmm. not actually on enjoying, not actually on savoring and and kind of, you know, just staying with it. It's all about acquiring more. And it's, I mean, is there a place for appetite, Mark? I mean, is there? Oh, there's a lot of beauty to appetite for sure. Yeah. And that, you know, what we know about appetite physiologically, the dopamine system, they used to call it the pleasure system. And then they realized this has nothing to do, well, that this isn't, that's not quite right, that it's really the seeking system or the, you know, won't it be great when the anticipation system, and it's great for what it is. Anticipation can be very rewarding in and of itself. And so, and there's nothing wrong with appetite or anticipation, as long as we know it's not a good guide for lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) because it will, you know, kind of put us on fool's errands, you know. And so just to enjoy anticipation, enjoy appetite for what it is, but not take it as what it promises, because I do think it's very convincing in its promises that appetite says, I'm a sneak preview of what you can have. So then later it's like, well, dang it, I should have that when in actuality, the sneak preview system within us is not, you know, it doesn't have 2020 foresight. <laughs> oh man, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's so true. Yeah, I love in the book too that you talk about your childhood and you're kind of an endangered species, Mark. You're like gr- gr- <laughs> growing up, growing up without a television. I had forgotten about that in the book. And so you, in fact, you were so, you were such a, a rarity, I guess, in the, what, in the 70s or 80s when your mom had you signed you up for a study with Dr. Klein to study the impact of television on children, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember going, uh, getting in the car and going with mom down to the U and watching a couple movies and, and <laughs> going home. And I think they strapped some something wires on us or something. But later to go back and read that study that they were looking at kids who just had a TV in the home and those who didn't. <laughs> and how did they react differently to an exciting movie? Like a, if I'm remembering right in the study, I don't remember it, you know, in the actual experience. It's just a vague memory. But 
if I'm remembering this, there's like someone skiing down a hill in one and then some scene of a mobster shooting another or something. I don't know. It was some violence. And the kids who hadn't been exposed to TV had a much greater physiological reaction Hmm. to violent TV is what the study was. I'm probably butchering it, but yeah. The sensitivity, that the lack, that an absence can lead to more sensitivity was definitely the take home from that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I don't think it's any accident that, you know, that you are sensitive to these things. Again, growing up in an environment where you were not being overstimulated all the time. Yeah. And I look back and my parents were like my dad when we would go to a concert. I'd look over and he'd be in tears. He was so sensitive to the music and the impact it had on him. And he was an artist. He was a wow. engineer by trade, but he would he loved beauty and wanted to try to capture it with our, his painting and his sketches. And his his sensitivity, my mom's sensitivity, she would confess that she was super sensitive person with all of the benefits and challenges that go with that. And so I definitely both genetically, probably physiologically, and then mentored in sensitivity for sure. Yeah, I came to appreciate that. But all of us, I mean, according to what I read in the book, and obviously what I've experienced both personally and with my clients is that, you know, we are naturally wired to experience deep pleasure, regardless of how you were mentored or, or, you know, socialized. Yeah, what your genetic component, yeah, you know, we... The capacity for pleasure and enjoyment, and you know, you you don't really need to see anything to convince that. One of the things, one of the best ways to convince ourselves of that is watch someone. Don't try this at home, but watch someone who you can see it online now. Just look up sensory deprivation experiment, and some of these guys will get online, and you know, where the GoPro is, they go into a white room with white towels and a white sink and they have, you know, all the sustenance that they need. And it's not long before coming out, there's, they get so much pleasure from talking with a human being and they just wow. enjoy so immensely, you know, hearing music and eating food that has taste to it instead of bland. And so it's not, you know, we, we have recommended daily allowance apparently of stimulation. And if we get zero then we're very appreciative of it. But I think in our time, we get so much of it that we're bombarded. And I think we bombard our senses. And so because we're always have this kind of low hum of it or this fever, you know, this cophony of it, we don't really have the depth of enjoyment of stimulation because we don't get those contrasts as much of kind of the less so that then more can feel like more because if we want to now, we can have more all the time, you know, more stimulation and no break from it and lay in our bed at night and fall asleep looking at something on our phones and wake up in the morning and see what we missed. And so we can just, you know, engage in so much so readily that we never taste the contrast. And that is what our systems register things often based contrast. Yes, exactly. That's such an important point is to purposely, I guess, engineer into our lives because we have to, because it's, it, we're just, like you said, we're bombarded with it, but to really engineer in, in our, our lives and our lives of our families, these contrasts, it, it makes me think of, in fact, last week, again, when I was reading this book, my wife ended up with two giant Costco-sized boxes of Haagen-Dazs vanilla chocolate almond 
ice cream bars <laughs> that she ended up, oh, she ended up yeah they only had like three girls show up to the uh, young women activity and so she ended up with we had like 30 of them or whatever <laughs> and so here we are with a freezer full of these and so every night after dinner we would all grab one and just eat it and and i think it was my wife that suggested it she's much much more tuned into this than I am naturally. <laughs> she goes, <laughs> she says, why don't we spread out dessert maybe every other night and see if we could enjoy it more. And I love it. I love right? it. Right. Yeah. So we did that. And my, you know, my daughter and probably me grumbling like, okay, well, <laughs> so the next night, you know, we don't have dessert. We just, you know, and it's like Michael Pollan says in his book, Food Rules, where he says, you know, treat treats as treats. And, <laughs> so, and so that was kind of our motto that week. We were like, okay, we're going to treat this like a treat and build in some space some contrast, like you were saying. And, and it, was, it was good. I mean, it's, it's a small thing, but having that little bit of deprivation just makes it that much sweeter the next time. And it was fun to to just purposely like limit that when we had all these ice cream bars in there in the freezer. Now, you know, you eat three or four in a row of those things and you're sick and you, you can't feel anything. It was nice to slow it down and spread it out. Yeah, it really is. The In the waiting room, I'm thinking now, because in our waiting room as a clinic, there's a bunch of fun-sized candy bars and they are fun-sized. <laughs> it's just it's fun. To, it's like, what a bright spot in my day. But, you know, you think about what we do in the when I was in Korea, one of the sayings, what wise sayings they had was, hunger is the best side dish. And I always thought if I was walking around all day and came in for a simple meal of kimchi and rice with maybe this seafood soup, you know, clam soup, and you're like, wow, this tastes so good. What's so good about this? Well, you allowed yourself to get really, really hungry. Mm-hmm. And the I think what we do when we have the chance is we just level off the hunger part of it by, you know, snacking here or there. And yeah, so you realize, wait a minute, what does that do to dinner and how dinner, how enjoyable dinner might be? I don't, we're not doing it on purpose, but the abundance we have, I love the freezer full of Haagen-Dazs because that's such a great example because the Haagen-Dazs was, you know, it's like ice cream is a treat. But then if you get Haagen-Dazs ice cream, it's really a treat. <laughs> and I think what we have now in our in this time is we all have a freezer full of Haagen-Dazs, figuratively speaking, of, yeah. in our lives. We've got all the channels that I don't know if you're old enough to remember when it was, you know, the Sunday night movie of the week. And it's like, oh, my gosh, we got to watch a movie on TV. pop the popcorn sit down as a family now it's like do they really have to like have the five four three two one before my next binge episode comes up it's like can't this it's like shouldn't it be more instant Uh, (laughs) i'm having to wait instead of a whole week for the next sunday night movie to even see if it's a good one i get to pick them so i know it's what i like and the abundance is really a challenge to grapple with because it's like we are absolutely have this feast. The buffet table is full. Oh, it's so true. And what I, one point you made in there that I highlighted was that this battle is universal. The rich and the poor all have access to the same, you know, sensory wiring in our bodies. And we have access to these days in the 21st century, we all have access to ways to overstimulate ourselves. And so it's not like anybody has an advantage. We all can learn to deprive ourselves. And, you know, maybe the poor might not have as much, you know, rich food or 
other things like that. And they might enjoy more simple pleasures. I think you talked about some of those examples. I certainly saw that when I served my full-time church mission in the Dominican Republic, third world country, saw a lot of people just really savoring, you know, special things, treats, clothing, things like that. But all of our bodies, I guess, to your point, all of our bodies are capable of doing this. We don't have to believe it's just some special group of monks out there who are tuning in and getting this benefit. We can, <laughs> yeah. we can do it in our own homes, right? By even just spacing out the ice cream or slowing down and breathing. Can you talk about ways that you know we can start just doing that even just today as people are listening to this episode? Yeah, the it was interesting to me to study a little bit. I didn't become an expert in world religions, but to study the Sabbath in different religions and and uh, fasting in different religions. Mm. And there seems to be this incorporation, abstinence before marriage is another example. In some religions, there's this recognition that going without will help us appreciate or whatever it is. I don't think it's necessarily, for our purposes, we're saying it helps us appreciate. I don't think, you know, we can limit the purposes of fasting. I I don't want to pretend that ah, I discovered the reason God's doing what he's doing. But one of the benefits that you see in a lot of those practices where there's an absence or a waiting or a limitation of indulgences is this, it's not a deprivation, you know, it's like, why would, if that's something good, why even go one day of the week without it, one day of the month without it? But the lack and the sitting without and the clearing, the excavating that does the clearing away of the gunk so that there can be a kind of a a backdrop that the beauty can show up in a stark relief from is that's a simple example. The when there's nothing in my visual field, then you know something colorful does stand out more. If I haven't been eating, if I go on a hike and get hungry and haven't been eating, and then I see the fast food sign on the drive home, you know, the mouth my mouth waters even more. You know, it's being willing to experience the exertion and the deprivation. So to plug it into our lives, being willing to go without and to be bored. I think that's one of the things we can do. Meditation is another practical thing we can do in addition to fasting and waiting and so on. Simply having time where you sit still and let your thoughts quiet. It's challenging. I know a lot of meditation apps now. It's like they start with these little three minutes of stillness, five minutes, because I think in our time, these four-day Vipassana retreat meditation, people would say, three minutes? Oh. (laughs) Is that, I can't believe that's what it's gotten to in in 2020. Three minutes is where you start, (laughs) but we're, yeah, it's whatever we do. If we do three minutes, that's a great start because it's, we're not even used to that. Even this uh, one of the reviews of the book said, I go to the bathroom without my phone. It's like, yeah, even simple things like that are so unusual because it's like, well, if I'm in there wasting time anyway, I might as well have stimulation. (laughs) Right, right. Let's just keep the, let's keep the circuitry hot, you know? And it's like, wow, I love that. Yeah. It's, it's funny, the meditation thing, when you talk about that last summer, my wife, 
went with uh, Thomas McConkie's group, the Lower Lights Wisdom, and did a seven-day meditation retreat with them in Salt Lake. And she had invited a friend from Texas and another friend, and they were going to go have a girls' week at this meditation retreat. Neither, none of them had any idea it was a silent meditation retreat. (laughs) (laughs) And so when, when they got there and they got checked in, it was like, we're now entering silence. And they weren't joking. It was like they, seven days of no talking. And my <laughs> wife called me from the master bedroom closet secretly, hushed tones, you know, stealing away her phone that she wasn't supposed to have on day two and, and called me and said, I'm losing my mind. I had no idea. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. I think I'm going to go crazy if I can't talk to somebody. <laughs> we laugh about it now, but, but by day three, she had a really deep transformation and changed her life. And it changed our family, changed my marriage, changed me. She came home. She was very different. And since then, we've, we've meditated together. We've gone and done a day retreat. I did a silent day retreat with her last year. And we've done a lot more meditation. We bought meditation mats and pillows even. We've really tried to integrate that into our marriage and in our family with our kids, even like with home church that we're doing now yeah. after the sacrament. You know, at church, you usually have 10 minutes of semi-quiet, you know, between when they pass the sacrament. But at home church, it's over in like 10 seconds. Yeah, so, it's passed very quickly to all the so participants. <laughs> my wife, my wife suggested, she says, why don't we, after we take the sacrament, why don't we basically do some still sitting for five minutes? And so we do. We just, no music, just completely quiet. And we just all sit and just meditate for five minutes and it's quiet. And it is such a sweet experience to just sit there in stillness in your home with your family for five, uh, five minutes. And we do it twice, right? Once for the bread, once for the water. It's just a beautiful, beautiful experience. And, and that, that is, I agree, Mark, like, I thank you for indulging a little story there, but I, I can't say enough about the power of stillness and just sitting. It's right in front of us. Like it's, it's, you don't even have to go anywhere or do anything. Like we can just turn everything off and be still. And it's super uncomfortable at first, but it's life-changing. It really is. Yeah. The, uh, what I love about that is that she pushed through the discomfort yeah. to get to the other side. Because so often we, when there's not a structure to it and we can bail, so often we do. I know that's the case for me. And so to remember, you know, not only will I implement that on Sundays with our family, but it's a good reminder for me to hold my feet to the fire of quiet and <laughs> yeah. Sabbath and stillness. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about in the book, you said that, you know, we're, we're not, we shouldn't be dependent on the raw material of our lives to provide enjoyment, that it's up to us. That, can you say more about that in terms of, you know, this concept of, of depending too much on, on our environment to provide stimulation? Yeah. I think that's something everyone has experience with of, that when that wouldn't that be cool if I had whatever it is and it can you know take more subtle forms of oh that's so sweet that he did that for her wouldn't it be cool if I had a husband who did that for me (laughs) you know oh that's so cool that she's that wouldn't that be great if and to to realize again appetite's doing its job of giving us a sneak preview the issue and when we see social media posts wouldn't that be a cool place to vacation but to remember that the illusion of if i had that raw material the 
I would be in that place of perfection there I could kind of rest in and life would be so cool and it would all kind of fit together and I'd be hitting on all cylinders and to say the enjoyment of life is not on the other side of something I don't have. Yeah. And to stop that kind of, to stop short of going on one more fool's errand and sit and realize that it's a discipline to appreciate and enjoy, but we have people we can appreciate if we are willing to do that. And to, you know, it's that fundamental view of life as a discipline instead of I'm being catered to while on vacation or, you know, the the enjoyment is brought to me or I'm a victim of whatever level of enjoyment I have based on how good whatever is my salary or my quality of people I'm with and to say there's enough to appreciate right here but it's up to me to be willing to treat it as a discipline and not a something that should be catered to me by life mm. or that I'm especially that victim thing you know I'm just cursed to not have what I would enjoy if only all the facets of life fit together so I had that I know I would be enjoying life right now and to really see that that's really not. And I give some examples which aren't really current in the book, but you and I could think of so many current examples of that person who has life so together that they're interviewed for this or that podcast or magazine article or whatever, only to discover that they hated their life so bad that they sabotaged it a month later by, you know, leaving this so seemingly perfect life and mm-hmm. and uh, sabotaging it. But I think, don't you think our one advantage of some of the changes that have happened in the last 20 years is there's been a little bit of a leveling of the playing field and a little bit of the authority of celebrities has kind of been, <laughs> there's been people are calling that out more or they're just recognizing that there's no perfect life out there yeah. That, you know, if you follow all these rules, do all these things, you can live the life I'm living. And we've just seen social, I, I guess social media is partly what's done it, but the ever presence of recordings and people being willing to stand up to those in authority have shown us there's no one out there living this blissful life. And so let's not buy into this illusion, whether it's advertising or whatever. That's I'm kind of trying to hijack our appetites and get us to buy in. I think there is a healthy skepticism now that we maybe didn't have as much 20 years ago. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, I think of, you know, one of the, one of the quotes in the book that I highlighted, the J.B.S. Haldane said, the world shall perish not for lack of wonders, but for a lack of wonder. Mm. And I was like, right. Like, we don't have to believe that there's just some wonderful thing out there that we need to search for, but being able to have the ability to learn wonder, to learn curiosity, mm-hmm. to learn openness is available to all of us. And I, I love, I, and I love the permission and the, the, the encouragement in the book that we can cultivate this. We can learn it. It's not something that some people have and some people don't. It's really yeah, about being deliberate, yeah. yeah, and like really honoring the wiring because the body will adjust. Like we can, just like your deprivation video that you talked about, like we could, we will adjust down if we let ourselves. 
Yeah, and the people, you know, when they, people who've been in solitary confinement who start to lose the ability to recognize faces or to register voices and what language mm. is saying. Wow. And when they're around people, the appreciation again of human contact. And yeah, we do, you, know, you think about the miracles all around us, especially in terms of people, the people we love, the people right there with us, that if we're, it sounds weird to be disciplined about appreciating our loved ones, but, and not just our loved ones, but our acquaintances, but, you know, to hear the human voice, that it's a gift every day that we're getting from above is to be around people, to look in their eyes, to see their skin and their beauty. And that it, yeah, it, that it's not a lack of beauty of the people in our lives, but a a lack of appreciation, which can be corrected much more easily than a perceived lack of beauty. You know, we go about trying to, it really doesn't matter the (laughs) plastic surgery or the Mm -hmm. fitness program we get into, you know, we're not getting rid of supposed flaws if you're idealizing that way. But appreciating is something we could do for the rest of our lives. And you see the older couples who just have mastered that and they really have this sense of enjoying day-to-day each other, enjoying life, and heck, we're in it together, enjoying life together. Oh my gosh, this is, I'm so spoiled. And (laughs) there's a lot to learn from that, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. I, it's like they're never, like they're endlessly delighted, right? With new experiences and even just conversations. I think John Gottman and his his research found that cultivating that, what did he call it, of appreciation, culture of appreciation or gratitude uh, in yeah. marriages. Yeah. I think he found that, that in terms of marital satisfaction and just really enjoying the journey with your partner comes from this appreciation, comes from, and I think he's saying the same thing you're saying in this book, which is to really be delighted and surprised and to see and be grateful for all the things that are actually going well or what what you can feel and sense just in your environment right in front of you. Yeah, there's if, if uh, people are looking for takeaways or, or things they could kind of go do, uh, which I loved your examples of, you know, kind of pulling out some things to plug into everyday life. One of the things that really helped me with that, it's been several years, but I'll bet it's still online, was there was a photo contest of couples who've been together 50 years or longer. And mm. If I'm remembering right, it might have been the Pioneer Woman had kind of submissions from people. So if you Google that photo contest of elderly couples or 50 plus couples, you know, 50 years together, it was so cool to really it because I think seeing it, I think it does ignite the spirit of it, the spirit of appreciation, the spirit of patience and the spirit of beauty of cultivating appreciation of beauty in each other and other human beings. I think as we witness that, you know, you look at someone looking in the eyes of someone they've been with 50 years and still finding this immense amount to appreciate. Some part of that I think is shared with us and we can do it a little better when we are inspired by their capacity for that appreciation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's a great assignment. And I just love the concept here of trusting that our bodies will and our emotions and our just all of our our whole nervous system in essence 
that there's so much more to experience and to deepen. You know, you, we talked in the beginning about Helen Keller, and she really was sort of the the spark for this book. You know, someone who had lost sight and and hearing and struggled to speak, but still could touch, taste, and smell. And with those mm-hmm. with those three senses, was able to pick up on incredible nuances in. I think you talked in the book about she how she talked about how she could tell the age of someone by the way they walked, and she yeah, could tell how yeah. full the room was <laughs> right by the temperature, and she you know. She just had this incredible ability to sniff out like the seasons and just different things like that. Yeah, one of my favorite stories of her is the person in a reception line who yeah. circles back around and goes through again. And she, as she grabs their hand, good to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? How in the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that all those, all those hundreds of hands and she would remember that hand. I mean, that is just... Yeah. And so I, I, I love, I just love that concept that like our, if you think that you're bored or you think that you're, that there's not a lot to enjoy, you know, I just think about how deep and possible it really is, how much we just have not even tapped it, those of us with five senses. I mean, we just really have so much available to us if we'll discipline it and just allow it. I just, that's exciting to me because I think there's, again, there's this message that you know, that we're supposed to get more and more and that we're, you know, there's something better out there. And I, I just love that, the permission that it's just right here and it's just deep. Yeah. And that the hardware isn't broken. It can yeah. recalibrate, like you say. Yeah. And that it's a, you know, it's a well-known principle. They call it in psychology, the hedonic treadmill. Yes. That you're just going to be on that treadmill and you, it doesn't matter how fast you run. It really doesn't matter if you get a higher salary or if mm-hmm. you, you know, the things you think will deliver your best life that's out there. Right. And I'm just so tired of living this mediocre life. It's like, Oh, if you view the life you have as mediocre, <laughs> right. maybe you can, uh, there's an option besides, you know, burning the ship and trying another, <laughs> maybe you can, maybe you can relax a bit and settle into some, discipline, deprivation, and start to let it pop out at you again in a new way. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, for a long time, I've, you know, I've always enjoyed when my children come tell me they're bored. I'm always like, oh, something great's about to happen then. <laughs> right? <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> right. Stay tuned. You're going to probably feel something or have an idea or, right? Like I just, boredom for me, I don't know where I read that, but years ago, my kids were little they'd be like, I'm bored. And it was like, okay, like this is where it gets good. But I'm just curious, like in terms of helping our children, helping our families, you know, you, we can definitely like discipline ourselves, but are there ways that you can structure this in your home with your family, with your kids? I mean, I gave an example with the ice cream bars, but I'm just curious in your life or what you've seen in your work, or even as you wrote the book, ways that we can create cultures in our families, obviously not, not suggesting people just go like John Prine says, you know, blow up the TV, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. throw away the paper, move to the country, build your home. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what thoughts or ideas do you have for our listeners of, of ways maybe in their families that they can start to cultivate some of this just with teaching yeah, it's, children? It's a, different, yeah. it's a different role we have now because like my mom and dad didn't have to say stop playing pinball because eventually I ran out of quarters and I had to just come (laughs) home from the fourth street uh, game (laughs) arcade. And so there's no limit though to the number of Fortnite games our kids can play. And 
I'll tell you, it's not perfect solution, but I'll tell you our two nights ago, my conversation with one of my kids was, you know, tomorrow's a day without entirely, you know, it's been creeping up to where it's, you're too immersed. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow, don't do any, and then we'll kind of work on it from there. And it was big tears and it was, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, if it's social media for some kids or if it's gaming for some kids and Jenny told me later, you know, when you promptly fell asleep, you know, it's partly the relationship because partly we're saying to them, hang in there. And I know I didn't play Monopoly the other day when you invited. So I know you are trying to do other things, (laughs) but can you hang in there with us? Do remember we did try to go fit. We did go fishing and we, can you keep working on going outside and trying things? I mean, part of it is, you know, this is not a us versus them. It's a collaboration to say. Yeah. But uh, it was really fun the next day to see how he did step up and handle the day differently and ended up loving it. And then ended up, he was talking with his 20 something year old brother about how, you know, his brother was, I think, mainly one saying this, but isn't it cool how when playing a game is kind of a reward at the end of the day, it's even more fun that it is that contrast that you're describing. Yeah. And so I think pointing them, like bird dogging them to the, if it doesn't sound too luxury so that they shut their ears, who knows if how much of what they take in, but at least trying to convey to them the lesson of how expansive life can be if we say no to the first appetite that comes our way and discipline ourselves. But boy, it's a challenge. Like the we're Jenny and I are always amazed at how the default it's so it's like you have to build the dike and then you have to check it every day and you have to raise it higher and it's a dam that unless you're constantly watching the stimulation seeps in and lo and behold they're immersed in it again so it's Mm. not easy is it yeah no that's so true and i i love one thing you said there just as you know just as we're helping our kids you know find things to do or or you know alternatives to just being overstimulated or just embracing a little bit of boredom for us to have confidence in deprivation, for us to have confidence in what will come out of it, instead of seeing it as a punishment or they're in trouble for being too stimulated, but to really, you know, encourage them and just see, you know, coach them, see what they can feel, just see what they notice. And, you know, you have to know your kid. And obviously, like you said, you don't want to be too luxury or too overbearing with it, but just to introduce it in small ways, I think can, and, you know, do it with them or model with them and put our phones down and show them that, you know, life can be really rich. But yeah, I agree. It's it's a constant thing. And we're we're talking about it all the time in our home, obviously. It's like I said. But I love the statement you made. Have confidence in deprivation. You not only have confidence in them, but you have confidence that this yeah. experience you're introducing them to, it's gonna be enriching and they'll learn things of their own from it. You really are having confidence in the deprivation, not just in the in them as a person. And then in deprivation and them together, what yeah. amazing things will come of it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is a good note to end on. Sounds good. Yeah. So again, wanting more, the challenge of enjoyment in the age of addiction. On the very back of it, it says, do you ever wish you could enjoy life more? Right? So that's the real that's the real takeaway is that we don't need more to enjoy life. And so hopefully, hopefully you'll pick up a copy and just share this with your family and and it's a great resource. It's a quick read. I read it I read it in less than a week 
just a little bit of the day, 10 pages a day. And it, it's, it just was a really enjoyable read. And so Mark's a great writer. Uh, as you can't tell, if you can't already tell from just his, the way he speaks, his stories, his examples, his creativity, it's just evident. And so it's just really easy to digest. So Mark, thank you for, for sharing this, uh, this book with, with all of us, but also sharing your time today. Uh, Jeff, thank you for those kind words and for the opportunity to talk about it too. It's just been a delight. Awesome. Thanks again. I'm probably, we'll have you on back someday, you know, when we, uh, when we finish our next book or something. We'll <laughs> <laughs> it, it might be 10 years from now, but yeah. who knows? It might be 10 months, but either way, I'll look forward to it. It's <laughs> just really fun. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. All right. Take care, Jeff. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Mark Chamberlain and the great work that he's doing, you can find him on suncrestcounseling.com. You can also jump on any online bookstore like Amazon and search for his name and look up the few books that he's written. He's a great resource. And Mark, I just want to thank you for jumping on this podcast with us and spending so much time with us to talk about these things. You are a great resource and you've been a blessing to me and so many other people. And I hope all of you as my listeners found benefit in what you heard in these conversations with Mark. And of course, you can always drop me a line and let me know what you think of the podcast and any uh, show suggestions, any topics or guest speakers that you'd love to have on here. Please pass it along. I'm very open and interested in what you have to say about this. And you can reach me at G-E-O-F-F, that's Jeff, at trustbuildingacademy.com. So drop me a line. Love to connect with you. In the next episode of the podcast, I'm going to talk about a topic that oftentimes gets overlooked or really underrepresented and misunderstood a lot when we talk about addiction recovery and betrayal trauma. And that's a topic of abuse. And this includes, of course, physical abuse, which most people get as a problem. But there are other types of abuse that get overlooked. And unfortunately, a lot of helpers, that includes therapists and clergy, family members, minimize or overlook the abuse. And even partners who are being abused dismiss it or overlook it. And this includes all the different types of abuse, emotional abuse, which, you know, of course, includes like gaslighting and blame and criticism and other kinds of things like that. And then you've got, of course, uh, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, lots of different types of ways to control and manipulate people. And unfortunately, this is very common when you're dealing with addiction recovery. And my guest, Kimberly Day, a therapist out of Washington State, has developed a really simple matrix to really help us understand and talk about how to identify what your experience is and what's really happening in your relationship and what you need to pay attention to so that you can have language around what's happening to you around abuse and around entitlement and addiction recovery. It's a fascinating topic. It's such an important topic and we want people to be safe and to have healthy, not only individual lives, their own safety, but of course, relationships and families. So stay tuned for that interview. I'm really excited to share it with you and introduce you to Kimberly Day. She's a fantastic resource, and I really loved talking with her. It's going to be a long one, too. I think it clocks in around 90 minutes or so. One of the longer interviews that I've done, but definitely worth it. So stay tuned for that. I can't wait to share it with you. 